I want to read for you Matthew chapter 21, verses 14 through 17. 14 through 17. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask for illumination and understanding. Lord, we... Pray that you'd help us to see our Lord here, to understand what is required of us from this passage. Lord, you know where we're about to go. And we ask that you not let us go alone, but that you would go with us. And that every step of the way where we are reminded and convicted of our sin and our guilt, that you would be there near reminding us of Christ and what he has done on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. We are studying what is called Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' normal, natural, earthly life. Of course, after His resurrection, He goes on to live for, for 40 days before ascending into the heavens where he now continues to live and to reign. But here we're seeing the, the final week of his life, his ministry, up until his crucifixion and his resurrection. And you'll remember that as we walk through Matthew's gospel, Matthew, a Jew, writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, is now beginning to emphasize God's judgment coming upon this nation. And that judgment has come in the person of Jesus Christ because they reject Him. And so because they have rejected Him, He then rejects them. And we're going to see all of these things sort of painted for us in typological form. They reject Him and then He rejects them. And ultimately in 70 A.D., again around 40 years later, the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. It will be leveled. And the first act of this judgment that we see in this Passion Week is Jesus' cleansing of the temple, a very popular scene where Jesus enters into the, the temple of Jerusalem, which we saw last week is the, the epicenter of God-instituted worship. Now, while the glory of God had never filled this temple like it did the previous temple, God has still left His worship instituted. They were still to obey and still to... to carry on with the ceremonial institutions and the sacrificial system. And just like the 
visible church of today, that temple was a place filled with true worship and false worship. It was a mixture. And Jesus enters this temple here on the last week of His ministry and He finds out and, and accuses them of turning it into a shelter for sin, a den of robbers. They thought because they were in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, that they could do whatever they wanted and no one could bring any rebuke. No one could reprove them. No one could judge them. And He comes in... Christ, the glory of God, filling the temple of God as prophet, priest, and king, comes and He does rebuke them. He purifies that temple and He cleanses it of these kiosks of man-centered profiteering where they were selling um, animals for sacrifices, grain offerings, drink offerings, money changers, selling pigeons, making money off the backs of the poor... We saw that last week, and we saw, in essence, what will not be tolerated by Christ in those individuals and in those churches where He resides, namely, external moralism. You can't just come into a church and say, well, I'm in the church now, I did my duty, and therefore God has no, no, no issue with me. I'm, I'm beyond rebuke. He cleanses that and He gets rid of all of that thinking. And you'll remember that we said there in the closing that when Christ comes into a church to work in that church or when Christ comes into an individual to work in that individual, He begins purifying. He begins ridding that person of things immediately. Things begin to be thrown out in the yard and, and the, the body of the person becomes cleansed. Well, today, in contrast to that cleansing and that purification we see that He allows some things to remain. He doesn't get rid of everything. He gets rid of some things. While He shows disapproval for the buyers and the sellers and the money changers, He shows His approval of other things. Now, we might ask, how does Jesus Christ show His approval of a thing? Well, I would suggest He does that by active participation and by scriptural defense. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect, sinless Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And so, if He participates in a thing or gives hearty approval to a thing, we can rest assured that thing is approved by God. He will not approve anything sinful. He will not participate in anything sinful. If the Lord Jesus comes in and He defends a certain action with Scripture or He defends an activity promotes an activity, we can rest assured that his interpretation and application of that scripture is correct. We don't have to say, well, he, you know, he referenced Jeremiah 7 and, and later he's going to reference Psalm 8, but I'm not sure that that's, I think he's taking that out of context. No, he's, he's actually telling you what the context is. He's telling you the whole point of it when he does that. And so if he actively participates in a thing or defends an action with scripture, we know that's what he condones. That's what he approves of. And so, what's happening in the temple that Christ condones? What do we see taking place here that he gives his uh, hearty approval to by participating and by defending with Scripture? Well, we can summarize these activities under two main headings. First, there is 
humble desperation for Christ. And secondly, there is humble adoration of Christ. Humble desperation and humble adoration. Now, since both of those headings contain the word humble, here's a brief uh, reminder of what that word means. If someone uh, is humble, that means they are showing a low estimate of themselves in their own, their own importance. If someone has been humbled, they've been brought low in their own eyes and in their own mind. They don't think highly of themselves. If you humble yourself, that is to, you, you consider yourself lowly. You consider yourself less than important. You, you consider yourself of a, a low estimate in your, in your own eyes. That's humble. One who comes humbly comes bringing nothing and in need of everything. You don't come humbly to Christ saying, well, I, I've done this and this and this and this and this this week, but I need you to help me here. That's not humbly. If you come humbly, you come bringing nothing and in need of everything. If you adore humbly, if you set your affections on something humbly, that means you set your sights on it and not on self. You're looking away from yourself. To be humbled is reduced in your own sight, to be brought low, to consider yourself of low or less importance or value in the presence of something else. And so how do we see in these verses humble desperation and humble adoration displayed? We'll look at verse 14 and we'll see here humble desperation for Christ. The first thing that we see condoned in this temple scene is the continued healing of those who would come to Christ in need. And we see him condoning it because he participates in it. Again, if it would have been wrong, he would have said, no, you can't do that. But he participates. Notice, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now notice those who came. It was the blind and the lame. And we've seen this throughout Matthew's gospel. Blind and lame coming to him for healing. The blind were those who for whatever reason under the sun could not see. Perhaps these were some of the friends of blind Bartimaeus. He had been healed and he runs back to get some of his buddies. Brings them into the temple. Perhaps they had been waiting in the temple before. The lame are those who could not walk. Again, for whatever reason. These are sort of generic terms. And so what we see in the blind and the lame is a group of people who are completely helpless apart from the intervention of someone else. They were at the mercy of anyone and everyone who might lend a hand. Their physical ailments were of such a type that could not be healed by the, the medical technology of the day. And perhaps even still in our day, these things might not have been able to be healed. They were utterly at the mercy of someone else. The blind and the lame. Notice to whom they came. The blind and the lame came to Him. They came to Him, that is to Jesus, the, the centerpiece and the focal point of this scene. They came to Jesus. While the temple would have been bustling with all kinds of people, especially on this week, the, the week of the Passover, the chief priests and the scribes were there, we know. 
Perhaps you can imagine these buyers and sellers and money changers and pigeon salesmen still trying to clean up their wares and get all their things together and pack up their tables so that they could leave. These helpless people do not go to the scribes. They do not go to the chief priests. They do not go to anyone else. They go to Christ. We might should say they were brought to Christ. They were brought to the one who had just erupted in this tirade of cleansing. In other words, while, while everyone's wondering what in the world's going on with this guy, they come to him. Everyone else is spread out. They're coming into him to receive healing. Notice his response to those who came. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Again, we're still in this sacred place built for a particular purpose. They came to him in the temple and he healed them. He healed them. They were treated. They were cured. The word here is the word from which we get our word therapy or therapeutic. In other words, they were fixed by him. Perhaps bones that had been broken were mended. Growth plates, maybe, from a childhood injury that, that they didn't have the technology to correct, had never healed properly, they were repaired in an instant. Sinews and ligaments that were not attached properly were fused in their place. Debilitating and corrosive diseases that cripple men were vaporized in a second. Perhaps eyes that had never been formed in their sockets. We can't fix that. He creates them in their sockets. Corneas, maybe with birth defects, were created or corrected in an instant. Or perhaps maybe just one of a million optic nerve endings had not settled rightly, had not grown correctly, and it is fastened in its place. He fixed them. The blind and the lame, those who could not see and could not walk, He fixed them. Those who had been blind, their first sight would have been of the Lord Jesus Christ as He once again fills the temple with the glory of God. Those who had been lame, their very first ever stable steps would have been into the arms of the Christ. Here it's obvious that He is displaying nothing less than the power of God the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, restoring the devastating effects of sin upon mankind. It's that simple. He's doing what only the power of God can do. Now that says nothing of the, the spiritual parallels to spiritual blindness, spiritual incapacitation, which I think those analogies can be drawn, especially if you consider the way that John uses the term signs and wonders. Signs were things, I've said this before, a sign is not the thing. A sign points to a thing. You don't stop at the sign that says Sims Barbecue and expect for the, your food to be brought to you. You see the sign and you turn. Does that make sense? A sign points to something else. And so very often these physical signs pointed to spiritual parallels like spiritual blindness, spiritual incapacitation. We have no reason to believe by His wounds we are healed means because Jesus died on the cross, I'm not going to get a cold or I'm going to get the fluid. It's going to go away. You might just have to ride that one out. So if we, if we step back and we take the whole scene in, what do we see? We see through His own participation, 
the Lord's acceptance and approval of those who would come to Him in humble desperation. They've come bringing only problems, only needs. They've not come with money. They've not come with gifts. They have come with no hope. They have come with no claim. They've come just to Him. And He does not refuse them. He does not tell them, wait outside. He does not clarify, this is a sacred place for, for sacrifices and for rituals. If you'll wait outside, once I'm done here, I'll meet you outside and we'll take care of this. But this is, this is not the place for that. No, He doesn't say that. He welcomes them and He heals them. Then look at verses 15 through 17. And here is where we see humble adoration of Christ. Humble adoration. The second thing we see condoned is the continued messianic worship that had begun at His triumphal entry, again, I believe the day before. Except now it continues from the mouths of children. And it is given the stamp of approval by our Lord because He defends it with Scripture. Look at verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now notice in these verses the sights that were seen. We read the chief priests and the scribes saw wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple. They saw it. It's not, the, the focus here is not on the words necessarily, but what they were seeing happening before them. And I think it is interesting to notice who is standing around not participating but watching and criticizing everything he's doing. It's the chief priests and the scribes, the highly esteemed religious elite of Israel. Now that's not to create a dichotomy between a religion and a relationship or religion and Christianity, but these men who had set themselves in a false religion and false worship, false piety, self-righteousness, and they hated the true the true side of all of those things, who was Christ. Notice what they saw, the wonderful things that Jesus did. They saw the mighty, miraculous healings. They couldn't deny them. They were just mad about them. They saw the children crying in the temple. Children crying out and they could not quiet them. The focus, again, is not on what they're hearing necessarily, but that even the children have picked up and have learned and are now beginning to mimic the songs that the adults were crying out the day before. If you have kids, you know that's when you have to start making changes in your home if you haven't already. When your kids begin to repeat back things that you've said and you know you shouldn't say or they begin to do things in movies that you didn't think were that big of a deal but then they do them and you realize, oh, that is a big deal. When, when the children begin to pick it up, you realize they're paying attention. This could perhaps be a multi-generational thing. So they, they see the children worshiping. And then notice this accusation that's made. Now it's not explicit. It's implied. They were indignant and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? 
They were indignant. That means they were mad, they were upset about an apparent injustice. So th this word means they saw something that caused them to be indignant because they thought it was wrong. And then they asked this question. Do you hear what these are saying? And that question is rhetorical. It is implying what they're saying is wrong, Jesus, and you need to step up and do something about it. Now in Revelation chapter 22, you'll remember John fell down at the feet of the angel that had been showing him around and the angel says, what are you doing? Get up. Don't worship me. It is the job of one who might be receiving some, some undue praise or worship, uh, some undue accolades. It, it is their job to put a stop to it. Don't do that, whatever you do. And so these chief priests and, and scribes are basically accusing Jesus of rece receiving false worship. Distorted worship must most certainly be addressed. And it had been addressed already by Jesus. The fact of the matter is, though, this is not distorted worship. It's not misplaced adoration. This is not misconstrued allegiance. Inasmuch as these children were capable in their immaturity... They were singing the true praises of the true God and they had focused their attention on God. Remember the, this language is, is Godward worship. But they focused this on the person of Jesus Christ. And so the chief priests and the scribes are implying they're worshiping falsely and they are accusing Jesus of receiving false worship or worship falsely. Then notice the defense that he gives. Jesus said to them, yes. I have to admit I enjoy that answer. Do you hear what these are saying? Yes. Have you never read? If you want to really upset someone who thinks they're very smart, especially a very hypocritical person who exalts themselves in their own eyes with regard to spiritual education or learning, just ask them, have you never read? Or we might say, do you not read your Bible? Have you ever read the Bible? A, a very offensive statement to these men whose lives were devoted to studying the Scriptures. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies... You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Here Jesus defends the actions of these children. He first begins by quoting from Psalm 8. Jesus walks into the temple and he begins to preach. He cleanses and he begins to preach. And this psalm... Is, a, is an obvious psalm with regard to Yahweh. The first words are, O Lord, that is, O Yahweh, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Jesus here quotes from the Greek translation of that psalm, again referring explicitly to the I Am. And in that psalm, you might remember this, what we learn is that while God's glory and majesty have been set above the heavens, and while the celestial bodies declare His glory, He has also chosen the most weak and the most defenseless through which His praises would come. 
It's also interesting to note throughout Scripture that when God uses the infantile and the untaught and the unlearned to bring Himself glory, that's a sign of judgment upon those who should know better but have refused to do so. Even with all of their intellect and all of their education and all of their uh, adult maturity and ability to analyze a situation and worship properly, they don't. And then when children come in, and we, where we would say, well, they just don't know any better. Exactly. They don't know any better and they're doing exactly what they should be doing. And yet we often, you know, we, we know better and we don't do what's right. In other words, while those with every rational reason to worship stood indignant, those with the least rationality were standing there in humble adoration of Christ. And then in verse 17, there is implied sort of a rejection of the chief priests and scribes in Matthew's words. He left them. He left the religious crowd and went to stay with friends outside of the city. And so here we have humble adoration illustrated. The children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, to the son of David. These children, most likely prepubescent and yet post-toddler boys with little or no concept of true or reasonable worship have taken up the cries of the adults, not really even understanding what they're saying, but they're singing it. Hosanna to the son of David. These children are able to see this man's the focus. All the grown-ups are praising him. They've seen the things he's doing, and so they have turned their attention to him. Without arguing, without dissecting, without critiquing, in simple, humble, trustful imitation, they give praises to the King of Kings as a fulfillment of God's prophecy concerning himself. Humble adoration from these children. What we're seeing, I think, in, the, in this, these verses would be an explicit uh, fulfillment or application of what we read in Hosea 6.6. 6. God had said, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is not saying there, that sacrificial system that I commanded, stop doing that. I made a mistake. I want you to do something else. What he's saying is, I want your heart too. His, his desire in the institution of the sacrificial system in the temple was not just outward rote obedience. Just go through the rituals and obey. Don't ask any questions. Don't just do what I say. That's not the point. He wanted obedience along with a heart after God's own heart. Christ does not come into the temple and say, that's it, sacrifice is over, shut all this down, it's foolish. No, He purifies it, He cleanses it, and he continues to work the works of God. He exemplifies true communion with God. My house shall be called a house of prayer, a house of communion with God. And these people come in to meet with God in the flesh, and they leave changed forever. That's what happens when you commune with God. He's, he's showing them this is what it's about. So like last week, we saw that zeal for his father's house had caused him to purify and to cleanse here we see that same zeal causes him to institute and approve and continue true and right worship. Now we have to make the transition from the original setting there in Israel 
to our present context as members and participants in a local, visible church. If we, we make that transition, what can we learn about the most basic, fundamental elements of God-pleasing worship? Well, we could ask these questions. What would Christ condone and defend if He came in the doors today? He's here. But if He walked in bodily and sat through a service, and then at the end we said, All right, Lord... What would you critique? What would you defend? What would you keep? What would you get rid of? What would he participate in in our worship and what would he have to step outside for because he couldn't take part in that? What would he participate in and protect? Or more specifically, what does humble desperation and humble adoration look like for us? That's what we see here. He allows it to continue. I would assume in our own worship he desires humble desperation and humble adoration. So what would that look like for us? Well, both of these are, are at their root dispositions and, and focus. They're, they're areas of demeanor and emphasis. They deal with our attitude and our attention. So if we are to have humble desperation for Christ and humble adoration of Christ, that will show in our attitude and our attention. The attitude we have and the attention we give. So those will be our two points of application. Now, beneath our attitude and our attention, every possible thing we could imagine that deals with worship, or corporate worship specifically, biblical and cultural, could come into that. And we would begin to categorize them, pros and cons, goods and bads, right and wrong. We're not going to spend our time in all those details, but I think it is sufficient to say... If our attitude is godly and our attention is focused rightly, then all of the other details of our worship will either fall into their place or they'll fall by the wayside as insignificant. But we have to have our attitude and our attention focused. What I'm saying is Christ desires right attitude, right attention. If these are calibrated, it'll work. If our attitude and our attention's at top dead center, we're firing on all eight cylinders. But if we're off, then, then everything else is going is to veer from there. So first, examine the attitude you have. Examine the attitude you have. Your attitude is the way you feel. It is your disposition. You must come to worship with an attitude of humble desperation for Christ. Again, humble selfless, looking away from yourself, desperation, distress, misery in yourself and your own abilities. You must come to worship with an attitude of humble desperation. So what does that look like for you? Well, it might look like self-denial with regard to personal preferences, like songs or music style, clothing or dress, preaching style, preaching length, things like that. Now, there are biblical parameters that must be established, but preferences have to be set aside. When it comes to music style, we wouldn't say style doesn't matter. We should adopt a style. The Bible assumes that we will gather together corporately and everyone will sing corporately 
if the music style we choose to use doesn't allow everyone, or at least give everyone a decent chance, a decent shot to sing corporately, it's not a good style. Pick another one. Pick one that works, that everyone can sing along with. You see, that's, that's a biblical parameter. It's not a preference. Again, clothing style or dress, whether somebody wears a polo shirt or an Oxford, it doesn't matter. It's preference. Now, biblical parameters. Should there be modesty? Absolutely, without question. But your personal preferences, they have to be set aside. Preaching style, preaching length. Sermon's too long, sermon's too short. I don't like this, I don't like that. I want uh, more points in outline. I want more of a storyteller. Um, those are preferences. Preach the Word. We're teaching our men to open up the Scriptures and, and, and interpret and teach them on Saturday mornings. Um, and hopefully there'll be some men who want to say, hey, I want to preach. I'm, I want to do that. And somebody's going to get up here and they're not going to preach like me. And we're going to have to get used to it and deal with it and praise God for it. Some of you will say, thank the Lord for somebody that doesn't preach like that. But we've got to set aside preferences Deny ourselves. If you walk into a worship service and your attitude is already settled, well, I'm not really a fan of this and I'm not really a fan of that, you're going to have a hard time receiving any grace from God from that. He wants to give you grace and mediate grace to you as these men stand and pray. So if you're already saying in your mind, well, I cannot handle it when so-and-so prays, or so-and-so prays better than so-and-so. When that person begins to pray, you're already turned off from the grace of God. God is pleased when you deny yourself and consider the good of the body and obedience to His commands. So, deny yourself. This attitude might also look like self-depreciation when it comes to your abilities. And here, speaking spiritually, like your ability to mortify your flesh, put your sin to death, your ability to, to live in, in a godly way, to live according to righteousness, your ability to effect the salvation of a friend or a family member or a co-worker that you're sharing the gospel with, your ability to convince a Roman Catholic that they're lost. If you think you can do all that by yourself, you have no need for Christ. But if you can depreciate yourself and your abilities and realize I can't mortify my flesh on my own. I can't live according to righteousness on my own. I can't affect anyone's salvation. I can't convince anyone of their sin. That mindset is going to foster an attitude of desperation. It will, it will, it will, the opposite would be pride and, and self-promotion. Like a child when they, when they get big enough to finally start, or they think they can finally start pouring milk themselves and they get a brand new gallon and they open it and they think, I've got this. I've done it before with a half gallon. And they make a mess everywhere. That's, that's what it looks like when we say, God, I've got this. We have to be self-depreciated in our own abilities so that we will turn to Him. It might also look like confession of needs when it comes to your spiritual growth. Those who come in desperation do not come to offer. They come to receive they don't come to offer from their own personal storehouse, but to receive from His. So we can't enter into worship thinking, I'm going to go, you know, give God a tip. He's going to benefit from what I'm bringing, and I know He wants it, and so I'm going to go and give Him my worship. We have to come 
as acknowledged, sinful, desperate people hoping to receive from Him the words of life, spiritual strength so that we can continue, so that we can get up in the morning. So we might talk about areas of struggle. Talk about specific sins that have been revealed to you. Talk about particular victories that the Lord has given you. You see, what this, this does is it, it turns away from yourself and to Christ. If we come together and all we ever talk about is, is our learning, our knowledge, this thing or that thing, that there, and there's no hint of struggle, there's no hint, hint of, of a wrestling, no hint of a, a need of power, then it's just going to look like we've, we've done all this on our own. So talk about struggles and sins. The Scriptures say confess your sins one, one to another. Things like that. When those types of things become normal, your attitude of desperation, your one of, one of need, one of longing and striving after, can, after Christ, that will just be like everyday life. It won't be weird. It might look like a realization of Christ as your only hope. This is where, we ha where our attitude has to be. The realization of Christ as our only hope. In your conversations, in your singing, in your prayers, in your confession, in your hearing of God's Word, do you make known your humble desperation for Christ, for His life being formed in you without which you would remain a sinful and miserable wretch? You know, God can hear all of our songs distinctively, separately. He can, he can see into all of our hearts individually. It's kind of like when you're in a concert, everything sounds great, all the music sounds wonderful, but if you were to just pick out one singer and listen straight from their microphone, it's going to be pretty bad. This is the kind of audio you see on, on public television. They don't have a good mixer, and so you hear someone sing, and they don't sound near as good. It's the same with the Lord. He can hear every one of us individually and, and see into every one of our hearts individually, and so He knows how you sound. Is He, is he receiving from you desperation, realization as, of Christ as your only hope? Do you recognize that when you come to worship? I've come to bring nothing and to receive everything. Again, recognition is not enough. It's not enough just to say, I'm a worthless scum. I'm a worm of the dirt. It's, that's not enough, but that's a good start. We could go on and on. These things help us cultivate an attitude of humble desperation. And so when we gather with God's people, that becomes a time of utter dependence upon Christ. And utter dependence becomes as normal to us as greeting someone with a smile. It's just, it's just what we do. We're needy. We don't have it figured out. We're hurting. We're begging. We're pleading. We're begging Christ for a work because we can't do it. So we have to get our attitude right. Secondly, examine the attention that you give. Examine the attention that you give. Your attention is your thought and your consideration that you give to a thing. Your attention should be focused on Christ. All of your thoughts and your considerations should be focused upon Him. In our worship, attention should be given to the person of Christ, His divinity, His God, His humanity, His fully man, His sinless perfection, His sufficiency for the task of, of redeeming God's people. 
satisfying the justice of God, His, His lineage according to ancient prophecy. Focus your attention on His person. Attention should be given to His work. That He has come and He has fulfilled all the promises of God. That in His life He lived perfectly according to the law of God in the place of sinners. That in His death He died as a substitute in the place of sinners. That He was raised again because God said the work is sufficient, you can rise again. Because of His work on our behalf and our being justified in His work, He was raised from the dead. His ascension to glory to reign over all. He's king now. He rules over everything. He, he's bringing all things under His feet. We need to give our attention to that. Give your attention to His Word. Genesis to Revelation. What has He said? What has He commanded? What has He promised? What curses has He threatened? That should be the focus of your attention. His Word or His power. Give attention to the power of Christ. Now how do you do that? Except through consistent, persevering, specific prayer. If you're not constantly calling out to Christ for help, why would anybody believe you need His help? Give attention to His person, His work, His word, His power. Again, in your conversations, in your singing, in your prayer, in your hearing of the preaching, in my preaching is Christ getting your attention. When you come with the right attitude, selflessness, expectation, and your attention is set upon Christ, humble adoration, I have nothing, I come to receive, then the glorious mystery of His person will never get old. It'll never get old when I say He's, he's both God and man. We would never say, okay, let's move on. No, let's dig, dig in. Move on from what? You haven't figured that out yet. The perfection of His work on behalf of sinners never gets boring. When you get to that point in the sermon where you realize, oh, here's where he's getting to the gospel, it's not like, okay, I've heard this. I remember this last week. No, you want to hear it again. Give me the gospel again. I need to hear it again. A detailed focus on his word is never exhausted. I've said before, when we get to the end of Matthew, I feel like I could go back to the beginning and just start over. We haven't, we're, we're not getting it all. Persistent pleading for his power and his work never dwindles. Now why is that? Because you're convinced you need it. Because you adore Him. You want to hear all about Him. You want to talk to Him. And I would say if these are not true of you, search your heart to see if you really know Him. You might not know Him. The Lord Jesus Christ was consumed with righteous zeal for His Father's house. That is for the true and proper worship of the living God. And that same zeal should ravish our spirit as well. It should eat us up as well. And that means we welcome His purifying work in our lives and in our church. That means that we, we set ourselves to come alongside of Him and work with Him to purify the church, to purify ourselves. At the same time, that same zeal caused Him to, to allow and approve of everything that was right and good and holy and godly as it pertained to His Father's house. That same zeal should consume us. We've got to make sure good preaching keeps going. We've got to make sure that our worship is solid. 
it's not just my job. It's not just Nate's job. It's all of our jobs to make sure that zeal should eat us all up to ensure that, that true and right worship continues. We strive to have our, have our attitudes adjusted and our focus set squarely upon Christ, adoring Him and treasuring Him above all else. And again, if those things will be settled in our hearts, every facet of worship will find its place or it will fall by the wayside in insignificance. So whether we paint the walls green or orange or whatever, polka dots in, in the new building, whether we have pews or chairs, whether we stand on our head or sit on our feet, it won't matter if our attitude is right and our focus is set. Now, I believe if those things happen, we'll make good decisions like standing on your head. is not a great idea in worship. That's not conducive. It will find its place. Well, the Lord's Supper is one place where we come every week to have our attitude adjusted and our attention focused. It should humble us to consider that our Lord's body was crushed under the weight of His Father's justice for sins. As we come to the table, it reminds us again and again where our focus should be. It should be on that one man who for our sakes was made poor, was made a wretch, was made sin, and then crushed so that we might live to God. So church, think on those things, meditate upon those things, and then we'll come to the Lord's table.